0: Hi everybody and welcome to another edition of the Globe Podcast on World Football Index. Today I'm joined by an author of a book named The European Game. Uh, He was with us for our first ever scouting podcast so we decided to bring him back and have a little bit of a chat about this book because it covers a lot of areas that I'm sure our listeners will find very interesting. So first and foremost, welcome back Dan Fieldsend. How are you Dan? Uh, Second appearance on WFI, you're becoming a regular.
1: Yeah, I'm starting to feel like a regular. Thank you for having me back, Dave. Delighted to be here.
0: Well, as I say, we've we've babbled for nearly an hour before this. I suppose we may as well get round to doing a podcast at some point. (laughs) Dan, your your book, The European Game, obviously takes a look at at the development of football and and so on around Europe. What was your motivation for, for, for going down this line of the book? To be honest,
1: I feel like there's a thirst out there for fans who now want, are you know, so passionate about the game. We want to know exactly what it is that these clubs are doing day to day. What does a manager do? And, you know, it's it's gone beyond just being a fan of the spectacle of play. You know, we're getting quite analytical about it now and fans have a real desire to discover about the methods. And I was writing about similar stuff online, but this had never been done before. Like, there have been books out there, obviously, football books are usually about biographies and such, but never actually behind the curtain of what what it is that clubs do and what makes them so successful. So, there was a niche, and I'd always had the desire to write a book, Dave. So, I just combined the two, obviously, I to travel as well. Um, I was going to go and visit these clubs anyway one day, but I thought, why not put it all together? And yeah, it's come together quite nicely in the end.
0: Well, you know, when you started out, obviously, you know, you would have quite a knowledge of the English game, obviously, growing up in England and so on. But where was your starting point? You know, obviously, you went all around Europe. You saw, you know, different structures and models of how to run a football club. How how did you initially get involved there with the clubs? Were they they open to you? Because sometimes, like, I know from from doing this, and I've contacted clubs in the past about... uh, Maybe getting some, some audio or something like that. And it can be a very, very difficult uh, d- difficult route into these clubs at some time. Um, did you find them quite open to you? It
1: varies, not only club by club, but nation by nation. For example, you think of the best nations of developing players. You've got the Portuguese and the Dutch, and they were the most open, which I I don't know whether that correlates with them being so good because they're so sharing and open. And other clubs, for example, when I went to Juventus, the press officer followed me around and you know, listened to everything and wanted to know the questions beforehand. So it varied on club by club, but I was able to do so. So I'd done a little bit of work with Liverpool, and that was the way I could open doors, so to speak, and get into these clubs. And they were so friendly and willing, a lot of them. For example, going to Benfica, I was speaking to this guy on LinkedIn beforehand, Sando. And he told me what ferry to get. He told me how to get across. What time? You know, where to stay, which was above and beyond what I'd expected. So, certain clubs were very friendly. Others, I wouldn't say were not friendly, but were just a little bit more cautious. If that makes sense.
0: You know, obviously moving around these places, and and you know, obviously how long. the First question we have maybe is is how long did you stay? You know, in each club, and did you stay long enough that you actually? to identify the differences in style, the differences the difference in, in how they were coaching, um, the different ideologies of football, was, was it apparent as you moved from, from from country to country
1: in Europe? Yes, it was apparent, so I'd stay for two days mostly, that was the average at most clubs, Juventus uh, was a little bit longer because I met with the first team coach, uh, scouting staff there, and with the youth academy director, so I saw both sides there, and there are differences in the way that clubs operate. There's certain threads that run through every club now. So most clubs are tactically uh, periodising sessions. Most clubs have similar analysis departments. But there's cultural ways of developing players which vary each club. So, for example, the comparisons between Ajax and Feyenoord, that Ajax is all about developing the individual. and They're playing 1v1s and 2v2s. And then Feyenoord are all about developing the team. And they'll have the young guys playing on full-size pitches because they're developing for full-size football. So each club does have its own individual way of operating. Again, them last two chapters in the book, the Ajax and Feyenoord, they're quite interesting because they've had to come together and combine, so to speak, for the betterment of the Dutch nation, which you don't find that so much at other nations that clubs will come together to benefit the nation. You know, certain clubs look at themselves first and they don't, I wouldn't say don't care about the nation, obviously they do, but they care more about developing their own players first. Whereas in the Eredivisie clubs, you had the top academies and they're playing each other three times a season now um, because they think that the players will develop better when they're playing against good opposition more often. So even though you've got this fine old way, so to speak, where all the young guys play outdoors and they'll play with the wind in their face and they'll play in the rain because they're going to be like tough young guys... And then you have got Ajax, and okay, they get the best of everything at Ajax, and they've got huge indoor facilities. And there's two different players being developed, but they're working together to the betterment of the Dutch nation.
0: No, well, it's, it's a thing that I find here in South America. You know, maybe maybe not so much working together, but for the likes a couple of which is like the Champions League of South America. You know, if you've one Brazilian team left in the couple of the doors, the whole country is behind them it's just, it's alien concept to to for the people who watch football in britain you know because the the, tri- the tribal differences are so much but it's nice to hear that clubs are working like that but you know you, you talk about this great youth development maybe you know in portugal and holland is it apparent you know we, we look at the premier league and and, and we discuss this pre pod as well dan you know the, the it's just money it's it's just turning money. We're becoming customers. We're not fans anymore. You know, owners are seeing us as just an endless and an endless thing that they can sell to us. Whereas on on the mainland of Europe, and especially as you say in Portugal, uh, maybe Belgium even and and Holland, there seems to still be that that genuine football thread run, running, still very strong.
1: Yeah, they appreciate that the community comes first, and without whom there is no football club. You know, they they appreciate the role of fans. So, for example, at uh, Bayern Munich, they obviously do the public training sessions. They'll tell fans how to get to these. They'll put maps on the website, which you definitely wouldn't get at Premier League football at all. When I went to Rayo Vallecano, you know, there's kids just coming and going from the community. And they're just watching these young guys play because the club know how important they are. So when Paco Jemez was manager there, they'd go and they'd feed the homeless together. They'd go to shelters. You know they're doing things and they're active in the community, which uh, it's not as apparent in English football as it Dave, as you as you full well know. Well
0: um, I think, Dan, I think in English football for for me, if if one of our players goes and does that, there's a film crew with them, and I think maybe on on the mainland of Europe, that's done as 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 a more genuine um, thing without a media circus around them. Would I be correct in that?
1: Yeah, no, you definitely. Right. There's a lot of hearsay stories about, especially Ryo in particular. They consider themselves to be quite a socialist club, um, in terms of in terms of putting the fans first. If that makes sense, it's a left left wing part of the city. But the money that is provided, it's reinvested back into their own structures, into the youth sector, and into the community as well. Um, so the, the only real other club who are like that is Saint Pauli in Germany. You know, where they're using football as a vehicle to, to better the community and to better the fans.
0: Do you know what? It's refreshing to actually hear that because you know I think from 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 my perspective anyway, my tail end whenever I lived in the UK, you know it just felt that the game of football in England had a very sort of humble beginning. You know it was a game for everyone. It was and principally for a working man's game, which we've seen. And, and you know we've had numerous podcasts about ticket prices, and you know we have these in a lot of cases, foreign owners who, as I've said earlier in the pod, view us as customers just a never-ending way of wringing money out of our pockets. And there's absolutely no no identifying back with us. You know, again, we, we saw the, 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 our own team, Liverpool, getting on a bus to board a plane, refusing to sign autographs. They arrive in the, the, the Far East and they're signing everything for everyone. and it, And it just seems that these clubs are being run so badly, uh, not run so badly, but but the fans have just been left behind in all of this. And you know, it's it's a game now for for who has a fair amount of money in their pocket, and and the rest can just
1: disappear. It's interesting you talk about that because the first chapter in the book is on PSG, and it, it's the book's quite versatile, and that one chapter will be about finance, and it will be about scouting, coaching, different sides of the game. The PSG chapter talks about how to become a super club and how to how they specifically have beautified themselves and they've done so by gentrifying the fan base um so they had a hooligan problem at the start i'd I'd only talk about this in basic terms there was hooligan issues with certain parts of fans and the club put out banning orders for an excessive amount of fans anyone who was even so much as affiliated or being seen with these groups was banned so they Banned out a lot of their traditional support. And as a consequence, they changed the image of the club and they made themselves more appealing to a certain clientele of fans. So there were celebrities there. The footballers they signed were celebrity based. I speak about David Beckham in there, who don't get me wrong, he was positive for the local Parisian economy. He didn't take a wage, he gave his money to charity. But that was his decision. The club, and he knows full well, and Ancelotti speaks about this in his biography. The club signed Beckham for his image, his image, right? Somebody, too, for their brand. And the club transformed like no football has ever done before. And they became this real club for the, the upper classes of Parisian society. And as a result of doing that, with this new brand and new image, you know, they have become a super club from that. But. The fans you spoke of in your question, Dave, they've been ostracised and left behind. The traditional Parisian PSG fans, not all of whom were hooligans. Yes, there were sections who were. And even if they did wish to return to the game now, the ticket prices have skyrocketed. They'd probably be outpriced to do so. So, yes, while we, we consider it an English problem here, and it is an English problem, it's happening elsewhere as well.
0: And you know, you, you talked about your time at Juventus. There, uh, at least, a country where there's there's always been a fair amount of ultra problems and so on. I, I've seen Italy being criticised um, in the press for you know not fully reporting on it, sort of b- burying it under the carpet, the problems and so on. Uh, did, did did you go into any of that with with Juventus? Did, that, that type of culture that, that
1: so not so much at Juventus. I went to Milan, and I was there with the ultras i think it was kervasud was where the ultras were in milan and i'm there from a social, sociological perspective i'm trying to study the fans and the relationships they have with other other fans it's fascinating how the club balanced this because they had kaiosuke honda playing and there was a huge amount of japanese guys there for them but they were getting tickets in with the ultras as well and there was nearly a, a, a little scuffle, so to speak, of because these Japanese guys were taking photographs and the ultras are totally against any recording technology. And they actually had a huge banner there saying no photo. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's different cultures there. So the fan culture, Italy is obviously the ultras and they'll have microphones. They won't so much watch the spectacle of play, but they will organise the other fans to sing throughout. Obviously in English football we have these long moments of silence and our chants are quite spontaneous, they're dictated by a great tackle, a shot at goal, even a corner and they're passionate and then they fade and then there's this lull of silence again. Whereas in Italian football and other parts of Europe, in France as well, especially the ultras chant throughout the game and the club appreciate the spectacle they create. So ultras do have a lot of freedom there. Uh, they're given tickets to distribute and regulate actually by the club which is something you have as well don't you in South America in Brazil and in Argentina so I think that there could be a happy medium struck there in England we have unions now especially at Liverpool you've got the spirit of shankley and such I think the club should allow them to distribute tickets to well to certain people as well because they know the community and they know these young fans who should be going to the game and uh, not just Retaining the tickets and selling them for £40 and diluting the atmosphere and experience for everybody. So in your in update, need to actually allow fans to have, I don't know the quantity, but say 200 tickets to miss out, which could be a good idea here?
0: You know, I think you know, you're know you touching South America there, Dan, and, and I think the, the thing that... that enchants me still down here is you know you you can meet a family and from you know in some occasions the the old grandparents right the way through to the to the youngest children are are just it's just those clubs are in their dna and they'll never change you know like my wife's not a huge football fan but she's flamengo to the core you know because because it was what what the family did it's it's in the dna it's genetic and uh you know she'll defend flamengo no matter what and, and it's something I think that, in, especially I think all over Europe, maybe Italy's a little different, but that has been sort of diluted, I feel, in, in Europe. And, and, and it comes from this gentrification that you spoke about as well. It obviously has a part to play in it. And some of the atmospheres down here, particularly Argentina, where they start singing an hour before the game, they sing the whole way through half-time, and you know, they're probably still singing 45 minutes after the game, is it, a class apart um in, in, in supporting football. But I just look at Europe now and I go, well it's, it's also polished diamond stuff. And you know, you look at the European Champions League. It's so so polished, it's so one you know, it's just wonderful in every in every aspect. There's no there's no rawness and football to me it used to have need to be a raw edge with football and I think we've lost it Dan.
1: I agree Dave. Um, I'd I'd say that a European nation I still think do it well. The Dutch you look at the fans of Ajax, PSV Feyenoord, they can create one hell of a spectacle and they're filling out their stadium and not only are they doing so it's the local community who are doing it you know it's not full through with customer uh, spectators is the best way of describing it's the local guys and the ones who are ostracized from english football because we could still create atmospheres like that most definitely it's a generational thing. Well, you get it that, in
0: the pub now, don't you, Dan? Like, to be honest with you, I've I've gone across for a few occasions without a ticket and the hope of buying one, haven't ended up getting one. And sometimes, you know, especially on a Saturday afternoon game, the atmosphere can be better in the
1: pub than the ground. Especially the back room with the sand and could create an atmosphere that would rival the entire main stand. And it's that generation of fans that you, you have these guys who are 50, 60, even 70 year olds. They've no idea how to get tickets if they're not a season ticket holder. You don't go online. They're not getting these membership cards. And also, at the other flip side, there's you've been in the sanding as well, Dave, I assume, with the. You've got 15, 16, 17 year old kids who can't afford to go. And they can't afford to even pay £30 to go to these games, especially consecutive weeks. And even if they did go, it's so diluted that they wouldn't be sat with their friends. They'd be sat with strangers. And there's a shyness in terms of the atmosphere. People aren't singing because. They get looked at for singing. So, whereas in Dutch football and South American football, you know, they're in there together, they're getting tickets together. And how great is it to watch? People admire the spectacle, not just on the pitch, but in the stands as well. I'd spend hours, I'd look at footage of, you've got Racing Club in Argentina, obviously, the Boca Juniors fans. What they create is incredible. And we have the potential to do that, but clubs need to go back to their core and tap in to them communities and them generations of fans who are going to create the spectacle.
0: Well you see you know you touch again South America and I, and, I, and I will say you know what 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 you see is those are whole neighborhoods standing together, uh, barrios as they call them uh, down here. And and all those guys are from the same neighborhood. They all go to the game together. They all stand in the same place, you know, cuz still the old terrace and, and you know then you have you've your own band for each corner of the ground and whatnot and it's just a completely different okay it, it it can get violent at times and it is edgy but it reminds me you know like I attended football matches in in the 80s um you early 80s in uh, in England and they they were always edgy occasions as well we we, we weren't without our faults there. But it's, to me, football in South America is is the closest I've seen to, to going back to those days when, you know, that was real, you know, when the was standing was still there. And, you know, I know we're, we're moving towards safe standing again, but I think the moment that we all started sitting down, Dan, we quietened down as well.
1: Yeah, and I think it goes back to, so not just a football perspective, society as a whole is less communal than before. You know, people are not standing together and gathering You know, there's a decline of spirituality. People aren't going to churches. So humanity is quite isolated, I think, and society is. And football was the outlet where people could get together and there'd be a communal, a chanting and singing. And it was humanity at its best. And obviously there was the violence elements that spilled over. And it's so sanitized now that there's little difference sometimes in going to the game or going to the pub to watch it. You know what I mean, Dave, that? What would you choose to do? And especially if you can't afford to go with the game, you will go to the pub because you're just going to sit there anyway. So, yeah, what you're saying there about what it's like in South America, I, I you know better than me. I imagine there's no great amount of stewards or police presence that we could regulate it better in Europe than, than there where you have the violent elements.
0: Steward? Well, the odd one here and there. Have, you, normally, for, for the you know the new stadiums that came here for the World Cup, obviously a different matter, but the likes of the old stadiums, the likes I go to here in Natal, it, it's very much like England used to be in the 80s. You're behind wire the whole way around. You're caged in. The fans are caged in. And the police are actually on the pitch side rather than actually in with the fans. So, you know, it, it, it's nearly completely unregulated. Um, you know, we, we had crowd trouble here at Vasco against Flamengo a couple of weeks back. Uh, and again, there was no actual place within the inner circle of fans. They were all on the pitch, firing tear gas from the pitch, and you know, again, it's a completely different experience to me. It, it it's a very sort of there's an innocence to it. Um, you know, all these people from from little neighborhoods coming together, and it's you know they all have their little boxes with with their beer in it, and you know their food in it, and and it's it's a day out, and it, and it's still it's still an event for a family to go to, and. Walking into a stadium now in, in, in the UK or probably anywhere around Europe, it has this whole, whole sanitized, you know, you know your, your tickets checked and, and this and that. My, my tickets here are just an old piece of paper. You know, it's like a till receipt is, is what I get as a ticket here. And to me, the football may not be of, of higher quality, but certainly the community aspect of it, as you say, the social aspect of it. And, you know, Dan, one question for you. You know, we, we look at England the way it is and there's a bubble coming. I'm convinced there's a bubble coming with, with English football and money. Can you see if that bubble ever does burst? Obviously, we've, we've numbers of factors. We can include Brexit in that as a, as a contributory factor. Can you see it going back to its roots again in the UK or do you think it's too far gone?
1: As a romantic, <laughs> you kind of want the bubble to burst, don't you? You want fans to have control over the clubs and their own destinies. Uh, So we have, obviously, there's AFC Wimbledon, there's FC United of Manchester, where the bubble was expanding. It's quite frightening what has happened to football, if it does continue, because the finances are obscene, um, the celebrity culture is obscene, and, you know, guys can't, ordinary guys can't relate to football, with any aspect of it, in terms of what it used to be like. So... Yeah, you, you're definitely right. And going back earlier about European football, so one of the clubs I went to, Honvet, the Prime Minister there, Victor Orban, he's made sure that all these these fans who come, they have to have their phone print checked. They have an ID checks done. You know, And where is this community spirit? You know, before you've even gone into the stadium, you you criminalised, you know. So you're right there. that The bubble is expanding. Football is is not as enjoyable as it once was in that raw, passionate sense. It is this commercial enterprise, but, well, to stick up for clubs, so to speak, football has always been a business, and it has been ever since landowners erected stadiums in the 1800s, that there was always going to be supply versus demand. you know, the only real public face of that now that fans have to measure that, there's transfer fees and there's ticket costs. And a lot of people are disillusioned with both.
0: Yeah, and you couple that into and maybe you can't get your kids to the game, and, and and you're standing beside a bus watching their heroes get on a bus, and they're blanking them. It, it, you know, it, this is something that just, it just, it's just very emotive for me, and drives me mad. Um, you know, haven't been. That parent, you know, on numerous occasions at Anfield that with, with players coming out, sometimes they stopped, the majority of cases they didn't. You know what I mean? And, and, and it's so frustrating, you know, because you, your kids love these people. And and that's the status that footballers have now. You know, I can remember being in Manchester as a kid, and I remember uh, Peter Barnes, who used to play for Man, Man City. And I, I was with my uncle, and I said, that's Peter Barnes. And he heard me, and I actually came across, could you imagine a player of the day, or um, what low a percentage your player today would actually do that they'd, they'd probably look at you and walk on and i think that that's another aspect the players now have been raised from their from their 15 16 years of age we, you know we see it with vinicius junior here in in uh, Rio de janeiro with flamengo you know all of a sudden he went from nothing and all of a sudden he's raised up and and his profile's raised up and and they're almost untouchable and that's not the game that i certainly grew up with and it's not the game that i that, that i
1: want to see no, you're right, but there are still a few players out there, as few as they are, who are champions of the people, and the likes of Dick, Kite and what have you. And what you said about Peter Barnes there, when I was in Bayern Munich at um, Saberstrasse, or Strass, I always butcher this, I was a little bit merry, shall we say, and I shouted, Zabi Alonso, and I shouted, you are you going to come back to Liverpool? And he came over to me, despite the fact there was a 100 odd fans there, uh, I'm tall. I'm six foot four, but I didn't think he'd recognize, you know, my accent the way he did. And he came up and he did shout. He didn't shout. We did say, you know, I recognized that accent, and we chatted a little bit. And unfortunately, uh, I didn't get him to come back to Liverpool. He retired, but he's another guy who's a champion of the people. And whilst they are few and far between, I don't know if the motives at play that go beyond these guys that the clubs have instructed them basically. Who they can speak to, who can't they speak to, you know, that their lives are so controlled for, I don't know, I can say whatever motives clubs have nowadays. But at Bayern Munich, it started with Claudio Pizarro. He used to tell the players, right, it's you today, it's you today, you're going to go and speak to the fans. He's since left, but the club have continued that there is a rota of guys who will go and speak to the fans. And, you know, there's still that attachment and there's nothing wrong with that at all, you know, because every week clubs are doing recuperation sessions. You know, they're not giving away any secrets, any tactics. Why can they not be done in front of fans? So maybe this is something that English football needs to learn. Stop being so paranoid and be more embracing of the people who elevate you to the status that way you are.
0: Yeah, and you might also get a bit more of an atmosphere if you do that uh, in the process. Well, Dan, before I will get go into to, to plugging the the life out of this book, I, I'm, I'm sure you have a couple of standout memories, or maybe more than a couple of the places that you visited. What what were your highlights of this research? Because I'm sure you had some some great days. I think the great days were
1: only amplified because there were so many terrible ones. <laughs> um, oh. Dave, it was it was mad. There was nearly four months away from home, um, and I budgeted and I'd organised everything so finely. But then there was certain days. Obviously, when you're travelling, life gets in the way. And one day, I had all my money taken out my account. I was skint, so I went hungry that day. I went to the British Embassy in Milan, and I had to cancel going to Basel because there was like a domino effect. If I was to cancel on one club, it'd you know knock back every other club. But when I did go to clubs, you know that was when I was truly at the happiest. You know, being a football fan, just pulling up to the to the training centres, seeing the badges of Athletic Bilbao and Juventus and Red Bull Salzburg, these great clubs, you know, and it, it lifted the heart quite a lot. There were certain clubs who were more welcoming than others. Every club was welcoming. But certain clubs went above and beyond. So I've already mentioned about Benfica and the guy telling me, this is how you get here. This is where you should stay. I'll meet you when the ferry gets off. And, you know, and Benfica as well. Have you ever seen the football 360 rooms where they have one of Bouchard's Altman but it's just this, this net of meshing, but it's LED lights. And there's a guy in the middle, there's four balls, and the balls are fired into the guy in the middle. He takes a touch and there's a different scenario. So can you touch and finish? Can you pass it into the feet of the player moving? Well, when I got to Benfica, there was a new player there and they were doing tests on him. And they had him in the middle of this machine. I couldn't believe it. They said, this facility cost us 1.5 million euros. You know, only Dortmund have one and ours is better because there's so many different scenarios there. And I'm like, that's fantastic. And I only had a pair of leather shoes on, and I tried to dress quite smart. And then he say, OK, Dan, right it's your turn now. <laughs> and there I am, and you know, I totally didn't expect it, in the middle of this beast of a facility, getting these balls fired into me and having shot this virtual goalkeeper. It was absolutely fantastic. And as you, know, as you can imagine, I'm leaving that facility. I'm on cloud nine. Absolutely buzzing, and I couldn't wait. I get my laptop out in the ferry. I'm writing about it straight all the way. You know, I couldn't wait to get this story across. Uh, so there were certain clubs that were just so friendly, so nice and welcoming. Athletic Bilbao were one of them. Um, Leon were brilliant. Yeah, so some real standout clubs, and, and that comes across when you read the book. Um, you can see, you know, who are who are the clubs that I've written about in a real light.
0: Let's get into this book and where we can find it and so on, Dan, because uh, you've quite whetted the appetite for it, I'm sure, for a lot of people on this little pod. So feel free, tell us where we can get it. It's on Kindle, is on Amazon. Uh, I'm sure people will be interested in it.
1: Yeah, so it is on Kindle um, for anyone who's overseas. It's coming out, actually, for America and Australia. It's going on Amazon.com at the end of the month. It's only, it's only been on Amazon.co.uk so far. Um, but it's, it's sold really well on that um, I think it's coming to its well third edition soon because the second edition and the first edition, the copy is sold out uh, within seven days the first copy sold out so it's flying, it's doing so good and I'm delighted about that so I hope when it comes out in America the guys in America who are so thirsty for knowledge and they really want to develop the game and there's such a huge culture of coaching over there they go out and they buy it and they learn from it and I, I that's what i like to think about this book that no matter what your standard is or your level or even your your base of knowledge that you already have i think there's something in there for everyone where they'll say i didn't quite know that. and they'll take it away and they can incorporate it whether that's in a pub talking with friends whether that's in a training session of a friday night you know there's something in there for everybody so yeah thank you for <laughs> allowing me to plug that dave
0: not at all, and uh, and you're quite correct. We we have a, quite a quite a listenership in America, and uh, as, as you rightly say, who are who are sponges for knowledge of of the game. So, hopefully, uh, this this pod can sort of bring this to a little bit of a wider audience for you. And as I say, the book is called The European Game. I urge you to buy. I have I, I, arms in the air. I haven't read it myself, but I feel like I have because i have spoken to so many people who have read it. I'll be getting my hands on a copy very shortly. But listen, Dan again second pod and I would love to have you back maybe chat Liverpool with you at some stage if you were available
1: I'd be interested in that definitely
0: well listen we'll get you on the Copcast uh, as the season progresses we'd love to have you back again and just a massive thanks to you for, for taking the time to talk to us and one last time, go and buy this man's book. And from WFI's point of view, our usual pods, right there. There's three scouting spotlights out this week. Uh, we had to cancel our scouting podcast due to unforeseen circumstances with Lee. So hopefully, we'll get that done next week. Uh, we have a Mexican pod out there, we have a Russian pod out. Uh, we have our new Portugal pod recording on Tuesday, which we're all excited about. So there'll be plenty coming up on the feed. Uh, another three scouting pods. There's. A, there was actually a Brazilian pod even this week. There you go. Uh, it's done so many this week, I'm forgetting about them. But listen, just one last thanks to Dan, one last thanks to the listener, and until the next Globe, it's goodbye.